Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Today we're about to begin the second part of the Tanya. Now we're about to begin the second, second book of the Tanya, which is called The Gateway of Unity and Faith. And we're going to start with the introduction to the second part of Tanya. There are indications that Alter Rebbe was debating with himself whether the second part should actually be the first part of Tanya. Because in this introduction, he makes a few references, two or three references, as will be explained, which refers to what we've already learned in the first part. So Alter Rebbe was debating with himself that perhaps he should begin with the gateway of uh, unity and faith, uh, because that is really the foundation of the whole underpinning of the Hasidic philosophy, of the Jewish philosophy and understanding of reality and of divi- the divine, of godliness. But the Rebbe nevertheless decided at the end that this should be the second part of the Tanya. So we begin with the introduction, which he calls Chinuch Katam which means, chinuch means education, the education of the young one, chinuch katan. And he'll talk about the idea of education, the idea of the foundation for a, a Jew's life. Common, you like to read? Okay. Compiled from sacred books and from teachers of heavenly saintliness whose souls are in Aden. This mention of his source sources echoes the words of the Alter Rebbe in the title page of part one of Tanya. The previous Rebbe, the Rebbe Rayatz of Blessed Memory, notes in one of his talks that books here traditionally refers to the works of the Maharal and the Shafil. Shalom. He says books. It's based on books and the plural. So those refer to the classical works of the Maharal of Prague, the 16th century Rabbi and the Shalom. And teachers to the Baal Shem Tov, to the Baal Shem Tov and the Maggid of Mizrich, based on the first paragraph of the recitation of the Shema. The first paragraph contains both the verses, both the verses beginning Shema Yisroel, and the sentence beginning Baruch Shem, as explained in the Zohar. These quotations refer respectively to Yeshida Elah, the higher level of perception of God's unity, and Yechida Ta'ata, the lower level of perception of God's unity. It is around this theme that part two of Tanya revolves. That there's, these are not just two statements that we make every day. These are actually two different levels of the unity of God. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad refers to the higher perception of unity from God's perspective. And Baruch Shem Kved Machus reflects our perspective, the human perspective, from the bottom up. And this is the Zohar, and based on this is this whole second uh, part of the Tanya, which is, consists of 11 chapters. Educate the child according to his way. Even as he grows old, he will not depart from it. Since the verse writes according to his way, this implies that it is, it is not the path of perfect truth, but merely a path to be followed by the child. Hence, of what merit is it that, even as he grows old, he will not depart from it? Indeed, it would seem that the very opposite should be the case. 
When the child matures, he should forsake his childish path in favor of the path of truth. What possible merit could there be in not departing from it? The whole idea of growth, uh, of maturing, is you're, you're embarrassed by your youth. You're embarrassed by your, by your childish understanding, childish level of comprehension. As you grow in maturities, why would you... Why would you educate a child based on his understanding, limited understanding, and then say that this will never part from him, as if that's, that's, that's something to commend. It's actually something to be embarrassed of. You know, growth is all about change. It's all about moving forward, changing your perception, changing your, your understanding. So what's the meaning of the verse? To educate a child according to his, his way, and that will guarantee that even as he grows older, what you've taught him in his youth will never part from him. Now he's going to explain it. Now it is well known that the awe, literally fear, and the love of God are the roots and foundations of divine service. So the roots and foundation mean two different things. A root means that's, that's what caused it. Foundation means that even now, present, it rests on the foundation. Because the love and fear of God are, A, a motivator. They motivate you to study Torah and do mitzvot. If you love, you want to connect. And the only way to connect with God is through studying His Torah and through fulfilling His mitzvot. But in addition to that, it's not only that that's what motivates you to do the Torah, but even while you're studying Torah and you're doing mitzvot, it, it sustains it. The love of God sustains the Torah. It fills it with passion. You study the Torah with enthusiasm. You do the mitzvah with, with passion, with love, with fervor. You inject a tremendous uh, energy into the mitzvah. There's a difference when you speak about something, something you don't care about, or something you feel forced you have to do, or when you're doing or speaking or acting or doing something that you care about. The action is different. The speech is different. You're alive. It's animated. So the love of the Torah mitzvah is not just a root for the Torah mitzvah. But it's actually a foundation. That while you're doing it, it rests on that foundation. During, during, you, during the study of the Torah, during the mitzvot, you feel its presence. You feel the love. You feel it permeates the action of the mitzvot. It permeates the speech of Torah and the words of prayer. It's permeated. It's resting on the foundation of your love of God. Because a person who does, does it dry mechanically and technically, you feel you have to do it. You're obligated to do it. And you just do it by rote. You know, it has no, it will not sustain, and it's dead. It's it's not alive, and after a while, you just start cutting corners, and it you know it atrophies, it dries up. The love of Hashem is really the life force, is the root and the foundation of the whole Torah and mitzvah. The performance of Torah and mitzvah in thought, speech, and deed is rooted in and founded upon one's love and fear of God. The awe of God enables the Jew to properly observe the prohibitive commandments, while the love of him makes it possible for a Jew to perform the positive commandments with inner feeling, as the altar Rebbe now goes on to explain. Awe is the root and fundament of what constrains one to refrain from evil, in ensuring that one will not transgress the prohibitive commandments. What helps a person? from not transgressing, from not trespassing, from not violating, from not doing an Avera. It's that sense of awe, of fear. You're not, you don't want to harm the special relationship that you have. If you have this love to God and you have this special relationship, why would you do anything to harm something so special? 
So therefore, that, that's a self-discipline, an inner discipline that causes you to refrain from trespassing, from violating, from going to, to doing anything prohibitive, because you know that that will damage your relationship. So that, it's the fear of God that really causes you to refrain from doing anything wrong. It's an inner discipline. The only thing that really stops a person from doing crime, ultimately, is not the fear of being caught. That doesn't work. The ultimate thing that stops a person from crime is an inner discipline. You have something inside that tells you it's wrong. And I just can't do it because I don't want to disconnect myself from God. I know that I have a relationship, and I know that when I do the right thing, I strengthen that relationship. If I'm going to do something wrong, I'm going to trespass that relationship. I'm going to violate. I'm going to harm something so special. And that's enough to help me to refrain from doing something wrong. As tempted as I am, and as, as much as I'm pulled in that direction, but I have something inside, inner discipline. So without the fear, without the sense of awe of God, or the presence of God, then you don't have what it takes to really re restrain yourself or to have that inner discipline to do the right thing. So the fear or that sense of presence of God, this is what refrains you from transgressing, from violating, from crossing the red line, from overstepping <coughs> the boundaries. You know, the Hashem gives us very healthy boundaries. And when the Torah says, don't do it, it means don't, don't overstep your boundaries. And this is what, what uh, enables us to be able to to do that, that sense of fear, that sense of awe. Okay, continue. No. And the love of God is the root and fundament of what motivates one to do good and to observe all the positive commandments of the Torah and the sages, as will be explained in their proper place. As will be explained in their proper place refers to chapters 4 and 41 in the first part of Tanya. This reference as the Rebbe Shlita points out, corroborates the tradition handed down by the Thetan that the altar Rebbe originally intended to, to reverse the current order with his second part of Tanya appearing first. As part one and the 53 chapters of the first part becoming part two. Because here it refers to the fourth chapter in part one that we have already learned. The life force, the motivation behind all the mitzvot are the, the love of God is what motivates you to fulfill the 248 positive mitzvot, active mitzvot, and the 365, the awe of God prevents you and acts as an inner, inner barrier that prevents you from crossing the boundary, from trespassing, from violating uh, any of the uh, 365 don'ts. So here he says that, as will be explained, but it's actually as was explained. He left that in, even though at the end he reversed the order, but he still left the, these hints to show that there is, he was wrestling very strongly whether to put it in first or second, even though he, he, he decided to put it in second, but he nevertheless leaves room that there's still a strong argument really that this should have been first. The commandment of educating a child includes also training in the performance of positive precepts, as it is stated in Orach Chaim. Since the child is to be educated to observe both positive and both prohibitive and positive commandments, it follows that his love of God as the root and fundament of all positive commands must be such that it serves as the springboard for all the positive commandments that are performed as a result of education. We must therefore say that there exists an inferior and transient degree of love that serves 
as the root and foundation for those mitzvahs that are performed as a result of education, a degree of love distinct from the superior level that motivates an adult. Nevertheless, as shall soon be explained, this lower level of love, too, a love which is according to the child's way, possesses certain permanent qualities that make it desirable that even as he grows old, he will not, and indeed should not, depart from it. So what he's saying here is that if the motivation behind the mitzvot are the love of God, and we are obligated to educate a child, a child, a minor, to also keep the, the mitzvot. So if what motivates us to do the mitzvot are love of God, it means that the child could also reach a certain level of love of God that will motivate the child, the minor, to fulfill the mitzvot. Although you can't compare the two levels of love, one is like a childish level of love, and one is an adult level of love, when a person becomes obligated to do the mitzvot. Not just a matter of training. A child is a matter of training. You train them. So when you train them, it's, it's not the same obligation as when they're, they're obligated as adults. When you train them as children to prepare them for adulthood. But nevertheless, they have to have a certain level that they can achieve, a certain perception of a, develop, a relationship with God that will motivate them to do the mitzvot on, on a childish level, which leads them to do the mitzvot and the obligations of a child, which prepares them for adulthood when they become full-fledged adults and independent, and then they reach a much more mature perception and level of understanding and love of God, which will motivate them to fulfill the mitzvah. So, although you can't compare these two levels of love, but that is, that is the point of the verse that he just quoted. Educate a child according to his way. Although you're dealing with a child, a minor, and you're trying to educate them to follow on the paths of Torah and mitzvah, in the right way. And what motivates a child to do mitzvot? The same thing motivates an adult, the love of God. So you have to educate, education included in education. It's not just teach them, instruct them how to act, but it's also educate them, give them a foundation, give them a, a, a love, a relationship. They should feel, as, as a child could feel, a relationship to God that will motivate them to follow the right path. And although a, the child will outgrow it, because the child will grow into a mature adult and will reach a much more mature love, level of love of God. But the verse is saying that even when he grows older, there's something beneficial about the initial level of love of God, that childish level, which remains with them forever and ever. Even as they grow older, this level will remain with them, as he will explain momentarily. Shall you want to read? Concerning the love of God, it is written at the end of the portion of Achab, which I command you to do, to love God. It is necessary to understand how an expression of doing can be applied to love, which is an emotion in the heart. Right. If you look at the verse, the verse says, I command you to do. What am I commanding you to do? To love. You can command someone to do. I can command you to act. I can command you to do something. But how can I command you to do? I'm commanding you to love. How could you command someone to love? Either you do or you don't. You can't command someone a feeling. Either I do or I don't. You can't command someone, I want you to love this person. I do or I don't. You can tell me to do something loving even if I don't feel like it. You can tell me to tie my shoes even if I don't want to. I can do something. And my actions are not a reflection of what I feel inside. But how can you tell me I am commanding you to do? And what am I commanding you to do? To love God. How can be doing apply to love? The Alter Rebbe now proceeds to resolve this seeming anomaly. 
First, however, he describes the superior degree of love that cannot be created. One can merely provide the conditions for its revelation. As to the above anomaly, he now explains that there exists a manner of love that is indeed created by meditating upon those concepts that arouse it. An active verb such as doing suits this manner of love since it is experienced as a result of one's own doing. The explanation, however, is that there are two kinds of love of God. Okay, so what he's saying is that there are, there are, there are two types of love. There is a love that you cannot create. It's not man-made. It's not something that you can create or develop or nurture. It's there. It's a gift. Then there's a love which you can develop, which is in our hands. It's almost as if we are... It's almost like an external love, which we are forcing. We are developing. We are creating. Through our efforts, we are creating this love. It's almost manufactured, a manufactured love, a man-made love. Then you have a love which is natural, innate, inherent. It's just a natural connection. It's not forced. There's a love that's forced, that's almost imposed, manufactured. Then you have a love which is, which is inherent, which is just natural. He starts with the higher level of love. There's two levels of love. One is the natural yearning love of the soul to its creator. But this love is intrinsic to the soul, which is truly a part of God above. This love need not, and indeed cannot, be created at all. It merely needs to be revealed. Right. That's the natural love of the divine soul to God. Because since the divine soul is a piece of God, so it's naturally connected with God. It's naturally drawn to God and godliness, and yearns to connect, to aspire, to go high, to rise above, um, and that's some. That's not. That's not manufactured. That's not external. We didn't create that connection. We are born with that connection. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. It's innate. It's inherent. You're born with it. It's natural. It's not man-made. It's not manufactured. Religion is manufactured. Spirituality is manufactured. But Judaism is not manufactured. It's not man-made. It's not external. It's innate, inherent. You're born with it. You have a piece of divine essence. You're as Jewish as you will be the moment you're born. And that connection is there. And it's the same connection that's there throughout your whole life. You never become one of your other more Jewish. It's there. You have to reveal it. You can reveal it. But the love itself is natural. But then he asks, how can such a passionate yearning... How can you reveal it? How do you reveal it in your heart, in your conscious, on a conscious level? Continue. But how can such a passionate yearning... But how can such a passionate yearning become revealed in one's corporeal, fleshly heart? When the rational soul prevails over the grossness of the body and subdues and subjugates it. Here the divinely appointed task of the godly soul comes to the fore. To rectify the animal soul and refine the body by means of the rational soul's comprehension of godliness. For the godly soul's own intellect and comprehension are too lofty to affect the body. The rational soul, however, embodies man's natural quality of intellect and as such is close to the physical body. The rational soul comprehends godliness in such a manner that it is able to cause form to master matter, to overmaster the body and harness its corporeality. Okay, a person 
is comprised of three souls. We have three souls. I wonder why we're so schizophrenic. We have a divine soul. We have a rational soul. And we have a natural soul. Instinctive soul. The divine soul is, feels connected with godliness. The divine soul is one that's, you know, that, that wants to worship, that wants to feels connected, it feels that it's nothing. It wants to become obliterated in its source, it wants to connect to its source, it wants to disappear in its source. It feels uncomfortable with its separation from its source. It knows, it feels that it's something from nothing, meaning at the source it is nothing. And it feels very uncomfortable, the fact that it's something. It's like light outside the sun. The light feels very uncomfortable. How could there be something outside the sun? This light wants to become part of the sun again. Within the sun, it doesn't exist. And it wants to, therefore, light, light is vibrant. Light is vibrates. Light is movement. Light is spiritual. Light is, is that's the, the pulse of life. Like you breathe in and out. Constant movement, change. Agitation. The angels are constantly jumping, dancing, singing, agitated because they feel that they're outside of God and they feel how ridiculous it is. What an absurd situation because the truth is that all there is is God and within the God they don't exist. Something from nothing. So they are really nothing. How are they something? So they're agitated and excited and they want to become absorbed with the source. They become one with the source. They're constantly worshiping God, constantly praising God, constantly connecting and that's, that's the spiritual realm. That's the, that's the divine realm. That's the divine soul. The soul is constantly agitating, like a fire, a flame. The soul is compared to a fire. That's why you always light a yardside candle. For a soul, you light a candle. Because that's what reflects what a soul is all about. The soul is leaping. You ever see a fire, a flame? It's constantly leaping up, moving, leaping up. You have to force it down. The, the flame wants to disappear. It wants to be absorbed in its source. You put a little flame next to a huge torch, it jumps and leaps and disappears and is absorbed in the, big, in, in the big torch because it doesn't want to be egotistical. It doesn't want to be independent. It wants to connect in its source. That's the nature of the soul, of the divine soul. It aspires, it yearns, it connects, it worships. It wants to be nothing. Totally egoless. Sounds like a lot of people we know. <laughs> so that's the divine soul. But the good news is we all have that within us, deep down, somewhere. Then we have the rational soul. The rational soul is the world of philosophy, the world of rules and laws, very ordered universe, Everything has a rule, everything has a logical sequence, everything has an order, whether it's music, or everything has its rules and its laws, and, and you know, you, the beauty of that the world is organized and the world is, is, is you know, based on certain fundamental rules and laws, and there's a cause that leads to an effect, and, and there's a rhyme, and there's a reason, and there's a logic to everything, and there's... there's and the reason has a, has a reason, a prior reason, and that everything has a cause and effect, everything has a reason, everything is orderly, and, but the effect doesn't worship the cause. The effect respects the cause, because the cause is primary to the effect. It's greater. The cause is primary, it precedes the effect, but the cause is something, and the effect is also something. The effect is not obliterated in the cause. 
the cause is like a child in the mother's womb. So the child is there. When the mother one's pregnant, when the mother's pregnant, the child is, is contained within the mother. But it's still an independent, independent entity, and then it emerges as an independent entity. That's the whole idea of cause and effect. The cause precedes the mother of the effect, but nevertheless, it doesn't obliterate. Not that the effect is obliterated as nothing. It's not something from nothing. It's something from something. Something from something. The child from the mother, the effect from the cause, the rule, the logic that dictates the next step, dictates the next step. And this is the whole orderly universe that we live in, this world of science and the world of, of everything has rules and laws, whether it's scientific law, whether it's psychological law, or whether it's spiritual law or metaphysical. Everything in the universe has rules and laws, whether the laws of music, everything has a wisdom, everything has rules and laws. And, and, and based on this philosophy, this is the foundation of religion. It's the understanding that just like everything in the world has a rule and a law, cause and effect, when you see a book, you know there's an author. When you see a, a building, you know there's a builder. When you see a painting, you know that there's an artist. So that's the first law in the universe. So you know, if you see a world, you know that there's a creator. That's the foundation of religion. It's almost logical. That doesn't mean that I am going to worship God, that I am nothing. God is something and I am something. God is, of course, the primary mover and cause, and God is, precedes us. If he created us, I have to have a respect for God. But nevertheless, God is something and I am something. On the contrary, the more you understand religion, the more you understand God, I am really something. Because I come from a real cause. God is perfect, so I'm also a little perfect. So if anything, it strengthens my existence. Unlike the divine soul, the world of the angels, which is divine and pure and godly, which they, are, they want to be nullified, they are egoless. The world of philosophy, the world of intellect, the world of science, of laws, of rationality, it strengthens my existence. The understanding that there's a God only strengthens my existence. It doesn't, I don't, I'm not nullified in God's existence. On the contrary, the more I understand God, the more it strengthens me. Aristotle understood that there is a, a primary cause. It only strengthened his existence. It didn't cause him to become Jewish, to become divine, to become godly person. No, on the contrary, it strengthened his ego. Look, how, look what an important person, person I am, that my mind is even able to understand the first original cause, of, which is God. So if anything, religion doesn't um, nullify the person on the country. It strengthens a person's uh, um, existence, something from something. That's the world of, of intellect. That's the soul called the intellectual soul, the scientific soul, the intellectual soul, the philosophical soul, the religious soul, which is not godly. It's not divine by any stretch of the imagination on the country. Then you have the natural soul, the instinctive soul. The natural instinctive soul is senseless, is mindless. Throw logic out the window. I know that logically we should be eating healthy. But the moment you see that delicious uh, ice cream in front of you, ice cream cake, you, all the logic goes out the window and you immediately dive into that logic, dive into that cake. What happened to all the logic? What happened to all the rhyme and reason and sensibility? Out the window. Totally senseless. That's the world that we live in. People look at this world and say, the natural world says, you see this world, you see a book, there's no author. You see this beautiful world, there's no artist. 
You see this beautiful edifice, there's no builder, it just happened. It, it's senseless. It doesn't even make sense. But this is the aggressive stance of the world. The world of nature that we live in, the natural world, the Hebrew word for nature, teva, comes from the word tubu b'yamsuf. It, it's submerged. It drowns out the truth. It aggressively covers up, just like the ocean is a great cover-up. You look at the ocean, it's calm. You'll never tell that underneath the ocean it's teeming with life. It's a total cover. It's deceptive, deceptively calm. There's nothing going on underneath. It's, it's hidden. It's, cover, it's a cover-up. The world of nature aggressively hides, conceals the world. In Hebrew, Olam comes to the word Helem. It hides, it conceals, and it covers up the truth. We're not talking about the real truth, that the world is something from nothing, that the world is nullified in its source, that creator and created are, are a contradiction. If there's a creator, how could there be a creator that obliterates anything outside of it? There's nothing really outside of God. We're not, but it even denies the logical truth, the philosophical truth, the religious truth that there's an original cause, that there's an author, that there's an artist, that this world didn't just happen by itself. And yet you'll have perfectly brilliant people will look at you and tell you, I don't believe in God. The same people, if, they, if you would have told them that Shakespeare was written by a monkey that sat at a typewriter, <laughs> would laugh at you as absurd, as an insult to intelligence. Yet the same people will look at you and tell you in a straight face that this infinitely complex body, today people spend their whole lifetime, their whole careers, 18 hours a day studying the ear, one organ in the body, and they still just haven't scratched the surface. And this infinitely complex body that... Oh, it just happened by itself. Oh, there's no God, there's no creator, there's no author. There's no God. It's just absurd. And yet people will tell you to you with a straight face and live their lives accordingly. Because if there's a God, there are consequences to that. Understand? Even the philosophical position. As Bilam said, Bilam was from the philosophical bent. Bilam said, God is God. God is the original creator, the original cause. But God is something, and I'm also something. He was very egotistical. But he said, if God orders me to do something, he tells the messengers of Balak, the king, if God orders me directly to do something, I can't deny him. Because God is the original cause. He's bigger than me. He's stronger than me. The Almighty, the Supreme Being. If he is the cause, the effect has to respect the cause. The cause precedes the effect. So although God is something, and I'm also something, but God is a bigger something. So <laughs> the bigger something tells me to do something, I have no choice. I have to submit myself. That's religion. That's a philosophical argument. He was not holy by any stretch of the imagination. He was highly egotistical. But that at least was a philosophical argument. How can you not acknowledge God? Then you had Pharaoh, who was on the lowest level. Pharaoh says, I don't know God. Who is God? He worshipped nature. He says, Hashem. I don't know the God that's transcends nature. I only know Elohim, nature. Because he was totally drowned, submerged in the natural world. Where there's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no logic. It's just instincts rage, instincts rule supreme. And it appears to be innocent, but it's not so innocent. It aggressively covers up in the truth. It hides the truth, it covers up in the truth, and it actually goes against the truth. So these are the three souls that each one of us has within us. We have the natural soul, the instinctive soul, the pull of gravity that pulls us downward, that schleps us, instant gratification, have fun for the moment, enjoy the junk food, enjoy the junk lifestyle, enjoy the momentary pleasure, 
even though there's no rhyme, there's no reason, it's self-destructive, it's absurd, it, it, it makes no sense, you're going to regret it the moment you do it, there's no substance to it, it's, it's, you feel empty, hollow, shallow, you just do it, you don't ask any questions, and you, you sink deeper and deeper into the, into the mud. That's the instinctive soul, the natural soul. Then you have the rational soul, the logical soul, a person who prides to be a thinker, like to think about life and think seriously about life. Think, what's the reason behind it? What's the cause? There has to be a philosophical understanding. There has to be an understanding of life. Why am I here? Where does it all come from? How do I fit in? What's the reason? What's the logic behind everything? What's the rules behind everything? Discovering the rules of the universe, going deeper and deeper. This is at least the philosophical, the scientific, the thinking person's approach to life, who can't just live life like an animal who feels that to be a man, to be a mensch, you have, to, you, have to, you have to have some sort of position in life, some philosophical, rational position in life that makes sense of life. The thinking person, that's the thinking soul, the, the rational soul, not the godly soul. There's nothing godly about the philosophical position. Bilam was very philosophical, but he was not godly. Aristotle was very philosophical, but he was by any, no, by any stretch of the imagination not a godly person. Probably the most brilliant mind that I, you know, one of the most brilliant minds. King Solomon was the most brilliant mind. But not by any stretch of the imagination, he was nowhere divine, nowhere, nowhere holy. And then you have the divine soul, the holy soul. The soul that's worshipping God, that's connected with God, it's like the angel. It's totally nullified before God. That realizes, feels that we're something from nothing. And that really all there is is God and we're all obliterated in our source. And all there is is really God. There's no other reality. And the soul is agitated like a flame that leaps up, that aspires, that yearns, that wants to connect, that wants to go deeper and connect and be absorbed in its source, wants to nullify its ego, nullify its, 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 its sense of self, its sense of self-separation from God. It wants to transcend all its limitations. It wants to be totally absorbed within its source. This is the divine soul. The problem is, how does the divine soul communicate with the animal soul? They don't speak the same language. It's like, it's like one end of the earth to the other. It's like 180 degrees apart. This is divine, spiritual pulling upwards. And this is earthy, material pull of gravity pulling downwards. Two opposite directions. How do they communicate? <laughs> I thought you meant Seichel folk. That's the intermediary. That's the intellectual soul. The intellectual soul is intermediary. Because even the animal soul, everyone likes to think themselves as a thinker. No one likes to admit that they're just an animal. I'm a thinking person. I'm a serious person. I'm not just a, you know, I'm not just a brute. I have some content. I have something to me. It's a matter of pride almost. So, so the, the, the intellectual soul could reach, could communicate with the animal soul. The animal respects, you know, the thinking, thinking person. The thinking person could comprehend or perceive the message or the arguments of the godly soul. The thinking soul who really thinks deeply about life could really begin to understand that truly there's something beyond the whole philosophical world and beyond the whole world of cause and effect, something from something. That truly we are something from nothing. That in essence we are nothing. And in essence we are really one absorbed within our source. And in the essence there really can't be any, we're not separate from our source and there can't be anything outside of the source. And the whole thing is just, is just makes no sense. 
because we're not like the light that's outside of the sun. There's no space empty of God. We are like the light always within the sun. So we are nothing. We're not a separate entity. We are totally obliterated within God. There's no other reality but God. How could there be anything independent? How could there be even be a light outside the sun? And, and the, the, the intellectual soul could perceive some of the agitation of the divine soul, some of the energy and the agitation and the excitement of the divine soul. It could filter and penetrate through the through to the intellectual soul. And from the intellectual soul, it could ignite the passion and the excitement of the animal soul. Because the animal soul responds to one thing, responds to energy, excitement. What does, what does the animal soul want in life? It's looking for passion, it's looking for life, passion, vitality, passion, life. You know, it wants to be alive, it wants the excitement in life. When the animal soul sees through the intellectual soul, and the, and the godly soul filters through the intellectual soul and sees that there's, there's some sort of excitement, and you know, then he's very intrigued. The animal soul is very intrigued. I like this passion. I have no idea what's going on. I have no clue. Why is this person excited about the giving tzedakah or acts of kindness or studying Torah, divine, or, or doing a mitzvah or going to synagogue? Well, what's, you know, we're not, we're not going to the disco. Why, why are you getting so excited? He can't understand it, you know. But, but he's intrigued. I see excitement. I see energy. I like it. I, I'm all ears. This is what I want in life. What do I want? It's not materialism per se. If you had materialism and you were dead inside, if it was lifeless and no excitement and no passion, no life, it wouldn't interest you. You want everyone's looking for thrill. Thrill, excitement, passion. Something interesting. Something new, novel. A new distraction, something exciting. A new thrill. But when you realize that the real thrill and the real passion is not in anything external, anything material. The real thrill and the real passion is when you connect with the divine through Torah and mitzvah. That's how you reach the animal soul. That's how you educate the animal soul. That's how you turn around the animal soul. You harness it. Because the animal is like an animal. It needs to be harnessed. The animal is not evil. But if you just leave it, the animal be by itself. It will be like, like a bull in a china shop. A person who acts like an animal destroys his own life, destroys everyone's life around them. Because he acts like a bull in a china shop. But if you harness the animal, you ride the animal, the animal could do wonders. You take that energy and you harness it positively, then that's the whole point of life. Why did the soul come down to this world to educate and ultimately to reach the animal soul, to reach the real eye, the eye that we are very all too familiar with, the human eye, the, the earthy eye, the down-to-earth real eye? Okay, I'm playing with an idea, and I'm not sure if it's going to come out the way I'm trying to thinking in my head. The animal soul really is just accepted the fact that it's nothing. So like, it doesn't feel the need to live philosophically when it feels already like it's nothing and just part of what it already is. You're saying that's why the animal soul, the animal soul is nihilistic. <laughs> the animal soul knows that really all materialism is really nothing. So you might as well, it means nothing. So you might as well live a life that really is meaningless and, and just live for the moment, enjoy life. And that's really the nihilistic... Uh, I'm not saying that's the way it should be done. I'm right. Saying I'm saying that's the way it is. That, 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 you're saying that maybe is the deeper, without its own, not without even realizing it, but that's really the position of the... It's kind of like ignorance is bliss almost. It's a different right. kind of nothing, though. Right, because it, it, it's, it's a meaninglessness. 
It's 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 a self-destructive nothing. But it's egoless, but it's also you see. But the difference in egoless of the godly soul is a very interesting contrast. Egoless in the godly soul means everything in life has meaning. Not meaninglessness. On the contrary, every moment you fill with meaning. Every moment becomes a moment of eternity. You fill it with eternal meaning. You don't just drink a glass of water. Every time you're thirsty, you drink a glass of water. You make a blessing. You turn it into an eternal moment. You connect the simple act with all the moments that ever existed, all the future moments. It becomes a moment where you live in the moment. It's the difference is living in the moment or living for the moment. The godly soul lives in the moment. You're always present. Every moment becomes a moment, an opportunity to connect with eternity, opportunity to live in the moment, to connect with reality with the eternal reality, with the ultimate reality, with the absolute reality. Every moment becomes a stepping stone to live in the moment, totally present. The nihilistic, the animal soul's approach is live for the moment. There is no yesterday, there is no tomorrow, I couldn't care less. Just live in the moment. This moment is divorced from a moment before, divorced from a moment later. There's no connection to anything. So like live the moment, not for the moment. Yeah, live, live, no, live. Not live in the moment, live for the moment, just enjoy yourself. And, and that's it. All, that, all, that, all there exists is this moment. Just have fun and that's it. Which is a totally self-destructive, totally nihilistic approach to life. In Judaism, it's just the opposite. The divine soul is live in the moment. Every moment becomes a moment that's connected to all previous moments and all future moments. I think the starkest expression of that, you can see it, in the Torah's approach to sexuality which is why the Torah prohibits the homosexual act. The homosexual act is exactly an example of living for the moment. All that matters is right this moment I'm having fun and I'm enjoying myself. There's no connection to a moment before, there's no connection to a moment later. It's just, this makes me feel good, I want to express myself, I want to have fun, and that's what life is all about. The bottom line of life is, I should have fun, I should fulfill myself, and I'm living I'm living for the moment, and that's all that matters. There's no past, there's no future. It's, it's all that matters is right now. In Judaism, the only sexuality that's permitted is in the context of marriage, which is eternity. So every moment in the Jew's life, in the Torah, every moment becomes living in the moment, an eternal moment. And I think it's, so, it's most eloquently demonstrated in the whole, the way the Torah approaches the whole sexuality question, which is so, so unique. Um, so that, that is the difference. So it's two, two different approaches. One, there's no ego, but every moment becomes meaningful, significant. Every act becomes significant. Every thought becomes significant. Every speech becomes significant. Not just significant because it makes me feel good for my own self-fulfillment. It becomes significant from, from, from eternity's perspective, from God's point of view. It really matters. You matter. Everything you think matters. Everything you do matters. Everything you speak matters. It matters. It can transform and change and affect the whole universe, all of the worlds, all of reality, past, present, future. You can single-handedly tip the scale and bring Mashiach, bring redemption to the whole world. This is, this is the whole Jewish philosophy. It's a 180 degrees difference from, hey, nothing matters. Well, let's have a party. Live as you please. It's just one big carnival. And just, you know, get drunk, get mindless, and just act crazy. I mean, that's... It's, couldn't be starker difference. So, are you saying that the godly soul cannot connect with the animal soul without the natural soul? Because it's it's two different. No, without the without the logical soul. Logical. Soul. Because because it's two, it's there's no connection. They they're on different wavelengths. The animal 
is not a vessel, cannot appreciate the depth Okay. of the divine soul. You tell an animal something from nothing and you're agitated because if God exists, how can I exist? The animal doesn't know what you're talking about. The animal is not even, doesn't even acknowledge that, that there's an author, that, that there's a cause, that there's a logical structure to the universe. The animal just wants to live like an animal. No rules, no laws. Just follow instincts. So you're going to start talking to him about something from nothing and we're absolutely nullified and we don't exist and our whole being is absorbed within our source and all there is is God. It, it just, it's like over the head. It's like, you take, it's like talking to a child. How can you talk to a child? A child doesn't have the capacity to, to reason or to... But a child understands one thing. A child understands passion, excitement. So when the child sees that there's excitement and there's interest and there's life, you know, there's vitality, you grab the attention of the child. Now you have his attention. Now slowly but surely, you can start educating the child until the child will start perceiving and realizing that there's, there's something greater. There's something intangible. There's something beyond the external material, you know, self-motivation and the, you know, the ego. There's something beyond the material world that, uh, you know, that, 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 that's the ultimate reality. And that's how slowly but surely you turn the child around. And that's really what education is. Education is you have to reach the whole person. Education is not if you become a monk and you go off in a mountaintop and you sit and meditate and you become a monk, a nun, because you haven't really reached the real person. Education is when you reach the real person, when you reach the earthy part of the person, when you reach the animal soul within the person, the emotional part of the person. Not to uh, escape to a world where ego doesn't exist and emotion doesn't exist, you could do that, but that's cutting off, cutting yourself off from the world. You go on a mountaintop, you swear off any reality, you tune in and tune out, and basically you've gone, you know, you've escaped, you've gone off, you've gone to the mountaintop, but you haven't reached the real you. The whole challenge of Judaism, Judaism doesn't let us get off so easy, Judaism doesn't let us escape. Judaism teaches us the whole purpose why the soul descended into this world is because our goal is it's the soul's responsibility to ultimately educate, to reach the animals, to reach the real you. The hot blood itself, the, the part of us that, that, that's seeking thrill and excitement and is hot-blooded and is down-to-earth and is earthy. You have to reach that person, that level. And you have to turn that level around. Where you should turn around your thrill-seeking and excitement-seeking and fun-seeking should all be invested in Torah and the mitzvot. That you should realize you're looking for real thrill, you're looking for real passion, real excitement. Where are you going to find that? Not in materialism, you're going to find that in doing a favor to another person, in studying Torah, in doing mitzvot, in shul. That's the whole purpose. But that takes time. That doesn't happen like that. That's education. See, how do you reach? How does the godly soul, the teacher, reach the animal soul? And that's through the filter of the logical, rational soul. So he says, when a person, when a person, with first the godly soul engages in the logical soul, until the logical mind begins to perceive that there is a reality that's beyond logic. As modern physics today has understood that there is a reality that's beyond, transcends logic and reason. When the mind itself comes to realization, using the mind, using rational, the rational mind. The rational mind has come to a realization, to a conclusion, that there is a reality that transcends logic and reason, quantum mechanics, and, and the whole world of modern physics. Where the mind understands itself the limitations of the mind. 
that reality ultimately transcends the neat little boxes, logical little boxes that we create, cause and effect world that we create. There's a reality that totally transcends, an infinite reality that totally transcends our limited perception. But the mind realizes it. Science realizes it. So the first, the first matter of business is, first order of business is that the divine soul engages with the, with the logical mind. Until the logical soul begins to realize and opens up to a whole new world. Perceives that there's something beyond the logical world. There's something beyond the neat, orderly world of cause and effect and law and order. There's something that totally, it's infinite. It's so vast, so beyond anything we can comprehend. And the little we comprehend is just, is just, is just a, a, an estimation. It's like taking a drop of the water, drop of the ocean out of the ocean and dissecting it and defining it. You know, which is totally out of context. Because life, whatever science defines and categorizes and limits and talks about, ultimately is like a drop of the ocean taken out of its context, taken out of the ocean. Ultimately, life itself is infinite. Life itself is beyond any definition and description. Once the logical soul really, really understands it in a very deep way, in a very profound way, then it could begin to impact the natural soul. It wakes up the natural soul, and the natural soul starts, you know, starts waking up and realizing there's more to life than just junk food and junk lifestyles and instant gratification, momentary pleasures. There's something more going on there. You want life, you want passion, you want thrill, you want fun, you want reality. I'm not going to find it in anything external. It's a dead end. It just leads to heartbreak. It leads to nothing. It's nihilistic, self-destructive, addiction. <clears throat> There's nothing there. It's a mirage. It's a Madison Avenue hype. It's a lie. And then the, the, the animal soul starts waking up. And you grab its attention. And it's open to realize that until the animal soul starts pulling in the right direction. You feel, you feel almost an animal attraction to study Torah and to do mitzvah. That's the goal. Not only you feel a divine attraction to study Torah and mitzvah, but the goal is to love God with both of your hearts, the Yetzer Tov and Yetzer Hara. You should feel an animal attraction. The animal soul should pull you to study Torah, to do mitzvah, to do a favor, so to do something genuine, something good and kind. Acts of goodness and kindness. Well, isn't that also the reason I'm supposed to speak the words when we pray? Right. Exactly. The exactly. That's why Judaism is unique. Usually prayer is associated with meditation, silence, quiet, peaceful. Walk into a Jewish shul. <laughs> Anything but silent, quiet, peaceful. People are praying. You pray, you move your lips. Everyone is talking, talking the words of prayer. Because the whole point is, the whole point of prayers, you have to engage the animal soul. If you don't engage the animal soul, that thrill-seeking, fun-seeking part within you, if you're just sitting and quiet and meditating and going off into outer space and ignoring your ego soul and just, you know, convincing yourself, deluding yourself, the ego is just an illusion and, and just going off in outer space, then you're missing the whole point. That's where the holiest... Prayers are substitute for sacrifices. The holiest place in Judaism is the temple. What was the focal point of the temple? Animal sacrifices. How do animals enter into a temple? 
Temple's not a place for animals. Temple is supposed to be a quiet place, serene, serenity, bliss, peace. What should have is very calm, new age music in the temple, very calm. A slaughterhouse, <laughs> animals running around, sheep and bulls and cows and, and goats and maying and yaying. And, and this is the temple. But that's the whole point of Judaism. Judaism is real. It's total. It's genuine. It's 100%. It's all of you. The good, the bad, the ugly. Every part of you has to become engaged. It's education. You have to reach the real you. Not just the soul within you, the divine within you, the, the, the sublime within you, but reach even, even the, the dirty parts within you, even the parts that you, you know, every part of you. It has to reach, it has to reach that part within you, because if it doesn't reach that part within you, then, then, it's, then it's, it's not real. That's what education is. That takes time. It takes effort. It takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime, thank God. You have a long life to look forward to, because thank God it takes a full lifetime, 120 years, and maybe, maybe we need more time than that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the godly soul communicating to the animal soul through the logical soul, the thinking soul, the philosophical soul. But you need, you need that intermediary, otherwise, otherwise you're not talking the same language. There was a great Hasid in Russia, one of the biggest Hasidim, of a third Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he was considered one of the big rabbis in Europe, he would pray, whenever he would pray, he would translate the words of the prayer in Yiddish. Yiddish was his mamalashan. Like to us, English, that was his language. He posed a question to his colleagues, because there's certain parts in prayer when you're not allowed to interrupt, you're not allowed to speak. So he asked them a question, a halacha question, a legal question, a Jewish legal question. Am I allowed to do this? Those parts of davening, a prayer that you're not allowed to interrupt, am I allowed to do this? So say the Hebrew and then immediately translate it into the Yiddish. And he looked at him and he says, we don't, we don't get it. Are you one of the most brilliant minds in Europe? And the most brilliant rabbis? You know the meaning of the prayer. Why do you even have to enter into this question? Why do you have to sit and translate every word to you? And what was his answer? The answer was a classical answer. He says, my animal soul doesn't understand Hebrew. <laughs> Hebrew is very lofty. Take the same prayer and translate it into English, into your language, it hits home. Oh, wow, this is talking to me. I understand what you're, what you're saying. This is not some lofty, flowery, esoteric language that just bounces off me and leaves, it doesn't impact me, makes no impression on me. It's just beautiful, poetic language, and I stay the same as I was before I prayed. I walk after the prayer, nothing changes inside of me. Prayer has to sear into your soul. It has to transform you. It has to excite you. It has to reach you. It has to agitate you. And for that, he says, I have to speak my language. I have to speak in Mamalash. So if you don't go through the, the logical soul, the, the divine soul is taking flights of fancy. It's going off into outer space, but it's leaving us all here, back here. Yeah, it's flying into outer space. And it's reaching the moon. It's landing on the moon. And it's, but... But here, nothing changed. <laughs> We're still stuck, marooned here and stuck, and nothing changes. Then what's the point? Then, then we're here, and everyone, and the animal soul is here. We're not communicating. So you need an intermediary, and that's the logical soul. So the tzaddik is someone who the godly soul 
have so penetrated the logical mind that even the logical mind has begun to perceive and understand logically the truths, the divine truths, the reality that we are something from nothing, that there's a world beyond the whole philosophical structural world of the universe, cause and effect, that really we're something from nothing, or really we're all nothing, and, and the soul is totally agitated with that fact, and that even the logical mind begins to perceive that truth. And as a result, the tzaddik has become so refined. His being, his personality, his intellect has become so powerful, so, so refined, so permeated with the divine truth, with godliness, that his being just becomes very refined. So much so that it, it totally transforms the animal soul within himself. That even his animal soul, his animal hungers and animal passions and animal instincts, are directed and harnessed and directed in one direction, toward godliness. He has an animal hunger, a passion, to study Torah and do mitzvah. It's hard for us to even perceive what this is. The same passion that people are running to Las Vegas or whatever, this tzaddik is running to show. Can't wait to open a book. They say the, the, this, uh, this, the, the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, the middle Rebbe, this child, the son, of the author of the Tanya that we're learning. He was once traveling in Russia. It was a freezing winter. And he was traveling from city to city. And he was on the road for a long time. And he hasn't eaten. He didn't sleep. When he came to the inn, they stopped at the inn. He jumped out of the wagon. He didn't even take off his coat. To, he didn't even take off his coat to warm himself up, to stop, to eat something, grab a tea. And he just ran to the, to the book. And he ran, he opened up the code of Jewish law. He says, this is the will of Hashem, the divine will. And he studied all night. He studied the Talmud. He was like, he, was like he, he couldn't wait to study, the, to study the divine, to study Torah, the divine will. Any person who has the most physical passion, the most physical human being, the most earthly, beastly human being that has an urgent, a passion for something materialistic, will never have such a passion for something, that same almost animal passion for something godly, for something divine. That's the tzaddik. The tzaddik has so transformed his personality, his character, his intellect, his whole structure, his whole human structure, his whole conscious mind has been totally transformed. That, it, that he has transformed even his animal soul. And therefore, therefore the divine soul is fully revealed. There's nothing blocking it. There's nothing in the way. There's no ego that's blocking it, that's interfering. There's no static. Every part within him is pulling in one direction toward godliness, and therefore the divine soul, with its natural love to God and godliness and its yearning for godliness, just emerges like a flame. There's nothing in the way, there's nothing stopping it. And that's why he's on fire. The tzaddik is on fire, a soul on fire. A flame with a passionate love and yearning for godliness. And he can't get enough. The more he satisfies the love, it's only pouring kerosene on the fire. And his whole life is, is increasing, growing, deeper, more intense flame, more intense passion, more deeper, and more intimate. And it's never enough. And it's constantly moving and growing and changing. This is the life of the tzaddik. This is the highest level of love. The natural love where there's no interference, there's no static, because he has totally transformed. His body has become refined. His physical being has become refined. The, the material is, his material is refined, is idle. There's no, there's no static. It's not coarse. There's no ego that gets in the way. While the rest of us, although we all have a divine soul, 
We're born with it. It's inherent. We inherited that divine soul from our parents. You're born Jewish the moment you're born. Yet nevertheless, our ego gets in the way. So we have static. So although we don't create that divine, that, that natural relationship, but we can't feel it consciously because, it, because we don't allow it to emerge, we don't allow it to surface. Our ego gets in the way. Our coarseness, our egotism, our earthiness just creates static and doesn't allow our divine soul to emerge. Well, that's, that's, that's why today we have Hasidus, and today we're able to, to reach, we're able to accomplish things that our parents couldn't accomplish. So it's easier today. What was long distance today is, is nothing. What was impossible then, today is so accessible. Whatever happens in the physical world is just a symptom of what's happening in the spiritual world. The fact that everything today is at our fingertips and everything is so accessible today and everything is so easy is just a reflection of the fact that spiritually, spiritually everything is really at our fingertips. Today it's so easy to access the divine core, the divine essence. There's very little static. If only we open our eyes, if only we choose to, if only we lift our pinky up, our divine soul is leaping out. It's at our fingertips. That's the, that's the special times we live in. As coarse as the world is today, as banal as the world is today, as mindless as the world is today, at the same time, the world is, is, is really at a very deep place, a very profound place. Godliness, truth, is ready to leap out, is, is, is so accessible. All you have to do is just, just open your eyes and it's right there in front of you. But you have to open your eyes. You have to lift the pinky. But the moment you lift the pinky and the moment you want to, it's all there. It's right in front of you. It's so easy. It's so accessible. The struggle, our parents had that struggle. They struggled for thousands of years. And as a result of their heroic struggle and sacrifice, they brought us to a place where today it's so easy so accessible if only we have the courage to want it it's there for our taking that's the paradox of the time we live in today on one hand it's so frustrating all the negativity but on the other hand all the positive the potential it's so ripe with potential we've never had such potential ever before in Jewish history and it's all up to us the challenge the ball is in our court let's continue inside the last, uh, the bottom of page 819. Then the soul will flare and blaze with a flame that ascends of its own accord. It will be a flame not with a love created through contemplation, but with a natural love, whose revelation is barred by the grossness of the body. Now with the mastery and refinement of the body, the soul's innate love, Hashem, can at last be revealed. And the soul will rejoice and exult both inwardly and outwardly in Hashem, its maker, and will delight in him with wondrous bliss. In this instance, the delight is part of the love and the divine service itself, rather than a reward for the divine service, as is sometimes the case. Right. It's not a reward, but that is a service. You serve, the tzaddik serves God with love and with pleasure. It is those who merit the joyous state of this great love who are called tzaddikim. As it is written, rejoice in God, you tzaddikim. To serve Hashem with the light of this order is the privilege of tzaddikim alone. But though the above-described love emanates from the godly soul, which is possessed by every single Jew, for which reason one would expect everyone to be able to feel it, it is nevertheless not experienced by all. The reason for this 
as the Alta Levi goes on to explain, is that one's physical growthness impedes its revelation. And clearing this hurdle demands prodigious effort. Every Jew is, a, has a, is like a little miniature tzaddik, has a tzaddik inside of them. But it's subconscious. We do not, it's not within our power to access that core, that essence, on a conscious level. Because our ego and our physical grossness and coarseness gets in the way. For a person to reach that level, you have to, it's like climbing, climbing Mount Everest. How many people are going to try to climb Mount Everest? And from those people who try, how many people are going to make it? Well, there was a beautiful story, the uh, third Lubavitcher Rebbe, the grandchild of the Alter Rebbe, who was raised by the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. Uh, he once saw him playing with his friends. And the challenge was, who can climb the highest? It was a huge ladder. Who can climb the highest? They were little children. All the children climbed, and after you know, a third of the way, a quarter of the way, a third of the way, half of the way, they all chickened out. And they all went back down. And the Tamar Tzedek just climbed and climbed, went all the way to the top. So the Rebbe asked him, how do you do it? So he says, the difference between me and my friends are, my friends kept on looking down, how high they've climbed. So they were overwhelmed with fear. They realized how high they are. He says, the higher you get, the lonelier you get. <laughs> There's no one else up there. You see how high you are, they were overwhelmed. Says, I kept looking up how much I have yet to go, how little I've climbed, so much yet to go, and therefore that gave me the confidence to continue going. But so it's very few. There's one that makes it. Who has the perseverance? Who has the courage? Who has the perseverance? Who has the intense dedication, devotion, commitment, stubbornness, heroic effort, uh, energy, Herculean effort? <laughs> but the, the, so the tzaddik, only the tzaddik, the tzaddik is the ultimate Jew. The tzaddik is the, is the one in a million, the one in, in, in a generation who achieves it. There's tremendous effort and devotion and dedication. He refines his body, refines his ego, refines his mind. And until the godly soul just comes through, it's like he polishes himself until... He clarifies himself until he becomes transparent. Until his body doesn't get in the way, his ego doesn't get in the way. Everything is transparent. Truth becomes transparent. He becomes a vehicle for truth, a vessel for truth, a speaker of truth. His whole being becomes truth because he's totally in touch with truth. He sees it clearly. It's all crystal clear to him because he has refined his mind and his mind just sees it. And he feels it and he lives it and he acts it. And, and he continues to grow from strength to strength, from truth to truth, from divine to divine, and deeper to deeper. But that's one in a million. Most people don't have that, that uh, are not ready, don't have what it takes to do this prodigious effort. But can't we aspire to it? Oh, that's a good question. Yes, we should aspire to it. Which is why at the beginning of the first um, part of the Tanya, he opened up with the line of the Talmud that before the soul descends into this world, the soul is administered an oath, be a tzaddik. Even though it's not within our capacity to be a tzaddik, it's only one in, the, in a generation, but nevertheless we are sworn to it because we have to aspire to be a tzaddik. Because the tzaddik is, is the ultimate. And that's what we have to aspire to, even though we may never reach there, we may never get there, and it's not, it's not within our capacity, but nevertheless, you are defined by what you aspire to. 
a society that admires the tzaddik, and the tzaddik is the focal point of that society, it tells you that the whole society is a very uplifted society. Where the temple was the center of Jewish life, and the tzaddik was the center of the Jewish life, it means the whole society, the whole community is in a very high level. If you aspire to reach the stars, you may never reach the stars. But it will keep you out of the mud. But if you have no aspiration to reach the stars, you just settle, compromise, become pragmatic, say, listen, I'll never reach the stars, what's the point, why should I even try? And you just settle and are content with the way you are, you will be knee-deep in the mud. So yes, we have to aspire to be a tzaddik just in order to be able to do what we have to do, what we could do. You have to aspire to reach beyond, beyond yourself. Okay, continue. Yet not everyone is privileged. Yet not everyone is privileged to attain the state of love that characterizes the For it requires an intense refinement of one's physical grossness, and in addition, a great deal of Torah study and good deeds, in order to merit a lofty soul level of the Shem. Right, so a person has to accumulate a tremendous amount of Torah, a tremendous amount of good deeds to merit, to merit such a revelation of your soul. Such an intense revelation of your soul on a, on a very conscious level, you have to have a lot of schusim, you have to have a lot of merit, a lot of uh, points. You can't just, it doesn't just happen by itself. And not everyone, not everyone has the capacity, and not, most people don't. Because it's a very lofty level. Okay? This is the soul level whose divine service is intellective. As the verse states, the divine neshama shall provide discernment. Only this manner of divine service can subjugate and refine man's gross corporeality so that he is able to delight in Hashem with wondrous bliss, which is superior to the level of Ruach, the soul level, at which one's divine service focuses on one's emotional attributes, and Nefesh, the soul level at which one fulfills the mitzvot out of an acceptance of the heavenly yoke. So he says the three levels of the soul. There's Nefesh, there's Ruach and Shama. Nefesh is the action, discipline, yoke of heaven. You feel like it, you don't feel like it, you understand, you don't understand, you're a soldier, God is present, and the commander-in-chief is asking you, and you do it, and that's the simple, basic, fundamental foundation of a Jew's life. Then you have a higher level, if you if you merit, you receive a higher level. The emotion, where you have a feeling toward the mitzvah. You don't just do a mitzvah, cut and dry, mechanically by rote, but you do it with a feeling, with a love, with a pull, a connection. And the highest level, the higher level is neshama. Neshama means with a deep understanding a comprehensive understanding, a penetrating understanding. Um, and that's the level of the tzaddik. The tzaddik, the divine soul, was able to overpower, he said earlier, overpower the, the intellectual soul. That the intellectual soul begins to perceive in a very, in the thinking soul, the intellectual soul, the philosophical soul, begins to perceive in a very profound way, in a very profound understanding, the truths of godliness, the truths of, of the divine until through the intellectual soul totally transforms the animal soul. As explained in Rashi Chachman, Shara There the author explains how the above level of love is specifically related to the soul level of Neshama. In some it is clear that this love cannot be created by man. He can only enable it to be revealed within him or refining himself, but to such an extraordinary degree that it is not attainable by all. Right, so this is, this is how he started out when the verse says, do as I command you to love God, this is not referring to this level of love. This level of love is clearly not something manufactured, it's not something man-made, it's not something external that comes from your conscious level. 
It's the, the innate, inherent, divine soul connection, like a like a, a flame that leaps up, that leaps up, and to connect with its source, to be absorbed within its source. It's it's totally natural, um, and this is something that's that's divine. The only thing you have to do to prepare for this is you have to be able to reveal it. How do you reveal it? By removing any obstacle, removing any static, removing any grossness, any coarseness, any egotism. And that comes through tremendous, tremendous effort, which most human beings simply do not have the dedication for it, do not have the capacity for it, do not have the, 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 the zitzvlesh for it, do not have the, the... It's just... They don't have the intensity and the depth and the focus and the concentration. It's just not within their, within their capacity. This is the tzaddik. This is the one in a million who's going to climb Mount Everest who's going to train for 20 years, 18 hours a day, who's going to be so dedicated and committed and devoted, nothing will deter him from his goal, and he will reach the peak. That's the lofty level. To refine himself through massive, prodigious amounts of effort and energy and time and Torah and mitzvot, to refine him, to elevate him until he reaches, until he merits an elevated soul, a lofty soul. Until he elevates it, the soul is able to be revealed within him. He's able to perceive his soul on a conscious level until it becomes his living, breathing, natural self. That's one in a million. One in a generation. A genuine tzaddik. Not the way we loosely throw the term around. Oh, a tzaddik, a Jew, a tzaddik. Oh, this rabbi, a Jew, a tzaddik. This Rosh Hashiva, a Jew, a tzaddik. No, no. This is this is the level of King David, of Moses, Aram, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, the Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tov, it's a different level. A tzaddik is a different level, different, almost a different type of human being. A Jewish superman, a different type of human being. Is just, his whole life is different. Do you have the silly question? Yes. <laughs> Th- those are usually the best ones. Really? I, so, um, is this one in every generation? Who's the spot for this generation? Uh, well, well I, I knew the, the tzaddik, I think we all know the tzaddik of this generation. You know, uh, The Rebbe was the tzaddik of this generation. Right. They're not all revealed, though. There's also hidden tzaddikim. Yeah, hidden. There's also 36 hidden tzaddikim in every generation. In every generation. Does anybody know the I know the 37th, but the 36th. Sometimes they're so hidden they don't even know it themselves. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.